Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer Grant Wall and SI.com's Brian Strauss. A little later on, we have an interview, Grant, that you were able to do with Angus McNabb, a vice president at Opta, the soccer data provider. Uh, but guys, first, I want to start with uh, with some Copa America talk, more uh, specifically what happened this week with Giovanni Dos Santos. It was one of the more bizarre uh, roster snub situations because it happened while he was in the midst of a media tour, organized, <laughs> pre-organized for this time. Uh, and both of you spoke to him during this time. Brian, you you got him uh, a little bit before the roster came out, and Grant, you had him on XM Radio as the roster came out. Brian, I want to start with you. We'll go chronologically here. Um you know, when a media tour is organized for a player like this, you assume it's because something good is about to happen to him. Um, and he, it was it was weird. He just wouldn't talk about Mexico's team. He made it seem like he had no idea what was going on, right? Yeah, it's one of the more, I mean, we've, we've all been doing this a long time. And it was one of the more bizarre experiences I've had dealing with uh, PR reps and a player. Uh, the, the timing was baffling. Um, their apparent ignorance of the timing was baffling. Um, and then this whole thing that came out later that Geo somehow snubbed an invitation to play in this tournament is baffling. So it, it's tough to draw any conclusions when I'm so confused. Um, you know, he, he got on the phone with, with a couple PR reps and, uh, I started asking about Copa and, and the woman, uh, who was working with him said, well, we're not here to. You know, we're not here to talk about Mexico or or the Copa roster. And I was kind of like, well, then why are you here? Why are we doing this now? <laughs> um, well, we can talk about the Galaxy. We can talk about uh, the Mexican national team, you know, in the big picture. And I said, well, the roster's coming out tonight. And uh, it's about 6 p.m. Eastern. Um, I didn't know exactly, but I knew it was coming out. And uh, the woman said, no, it's not. It's coming out on the 20th. And then Gio interrupts her and says, no, it's tonight. It's tonight. <laughs> uh, so I credit him for that. Um, but yeah, no, he 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 wouldn't go into details, uh, wouldn't talk about it, talked about how the Copa was a great tournament, talked about, you know, s- said he, he looks forward to playing with Mexico. We, we chatted about some other things. Uh, but I got off the phone uh, with him still, a 20-minute conversation, having no idea whether or not he was going to be in the tournament. So bizarre. And then Grant, as he found out you had him on on air literally as the mexico press conference with coach juan carlos osorio was taking place and the information was being released publicly that giovanni dos santos was not on the team and according to osorio had turned down an invitation to play on the copa america team we're on live radio uh on sirius xm with giovanni dos santos and i i imagined it was for head and shoulders. It was a PR thing he was doing. I imagine the head and shoulders rep just guzzling whiskey after this, uh, <laughs> or, or maybe even while this was happening, because or, or guzzling head and shoulders. This <laughs> <laughs> uh, podcast not to be sponsored in the future by Head and Shoulders, by the way. But um, it was just a crazy situation, and I'm on with Steve Cangelosi on Sirius and. Uh, his first question is, uh, Gio, uh, do you know if you're on the team? And, and the response is, nope, silence, which, by the way, not true. Uh, and then my question is, well, I'm I'm following this right now, and it has been released, and you are not on the roster, and Osorio is saying that you turned down an invitation. Is that true? Quiet, silence. I'd rather not talk about the national team. <laughs> so, <laughs> so awkward. 
in some ways, I came out of it saying this is either the the best live interview I've ever done or the worst, <laughs> or, or maybe a little bit of both. Um, but uh, it is baffling to me that Giovanni dos Santos would turn down an invitation to play uh, in the Copa America. This is something that is taking place in the United States where he plays. It's being promoted by Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing, which I'm sure is not thrilled at all that he has turned down the invitation, if that is in fact the case, uh, it sounds like it is. Um, it, it's that's crazy. You now he's one of the most uh, famous Mexican players, and I'm sure would help sell tickets. Now, will Mexico still sell a lot of tickets? Yes. Will they still have a chance to win this tournament? Yes, in my opinion. Uh, Carlos Vela is not on this team as well, and um, so we're kind of going back to the days of, um, you know, when there was this kind of running telenovela between. Uh, coach and players on the Mexican national team. Now, Vela has not really played that well this year, so I don't think he would have even started uh, in this tournament. And uh, Chicharito has been fantastic. Uh, Andres Cordado's on this team. There's lots to like on this Mexico team, but uh, we're back in the soap opera stage. And it's just... Gio was also, uh, Gio told me, he was kind of, not bragging, that's a bit of a strong word, but he was pretty proud of the fact that Mexico feels like a home team when it plays in the U.S. I mean, he he he, he made that point. And so, uh, yeah, just to follow up on what Grant was saying about, you know, organizers and people here not being thrilled about this, uh, that's exactly why. Yeah, the, the whole thing is, is just weird to me. And it's not like he hasn't played well. He's been in such good form recently for L.A. I think he's got goals in four of, of his last five games. Uh, there's the whole little bit about Juan Carlos Osorio uh, being a little peeved that he's playing in MLS, which is also weird because Osorio used to coach in MLS. I, the whole thing, there's just so many twists and turns. It's like a choose your adventure book. Um, but in any event, Giovanni Dos Santos will not be at Copa America this summer. Maybe the Olympics as an overage player again. Uh, uh, pretty doubtful considering his current relationship with uh, the national team program. <laughs> Perhaps not then. <laughs> uh, but his hair has body and love. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, speaking of Dos Santos uh, and MLS, uh, we're taping this on Thursday. The uh, One of the two times a year that the MLS Players Union puts out its list of player salaries. Um, it's it's not gospel. There are a lot of factors that go into these numbers that uh, that aren't reflected um, in, in the final tally. Uh, but Dos Santos, in guaranteed compensation, uh, one of the top 10 earners in the league, $4.25 million dollars. This season, guys, I, I kind of want to go around, you know, the millionaires club, if you will, um, and and get your take on on guys who might be a little overpaid, guys who might be a little underpaid, or guys who are properly properly rated. Uh, Grant, let's let's start with Frank Lampard. Six mil <laughs> hasn't played a, a minute this season. What do you think? Uh, terribly, horribly overpaid. Uh, I'm trying to think of a different uh, adverb. Um, yeah, you know, we have a discussion later here with Gus McNabb uh, about analytics, and uh, I do ask him if there's a way kind of using analytics to find out if Frank Lampard is the worst signing in the history of MLS. Can we use them to compare um, his lack of performance to, say, Rafa Marquez? Um, so look for that later on here. Uh, supposedly, Frank Lampard has a chance to play this weekend in the New York City Derby. Um, I'm not getting my hopes up too high, to be honest. Uh, very overpaid. Everyone likes a good redemption story. Thing is, NYCFC is doing fine with oh, them at this point. Um, Brian, the, the top two guys uh, in the league, Kaká and Sebastian Chivinko. Um, Kaká still 
still the highest in guaranteed compensation by by just a bit. Um, your your thoughts on on the top? Uh, Kaká's overpaid. Uh, he's got uh, two goals and two assists. Uh, he wasn't able to take Orlando to the uh, to the playoffs last year. Uh, he's in and out of the lineup, and and you know he has. There are questions about how much power he has there, and how you know. And we we've seen a lot of changeover in that club, and a lot of speculation about who's running the show there and where things are going. And you know, Kaká's a great ambassador for the league. He's a nice guy, uh, but he has he has a lot of control over that club, and that's not always a great thing. Um, obviously, Javinko's worth every every Canadian cent and every loony uh, that goes his way. Uh, he's spectacular. Um, and uh, Toronto is a favorite in the East, largely because of uh, his performance. So, uh, yeah, Javinko earns every penny. Kaká, I think there's the jury's still out. Grant, a little below Javinko, his teammate, Michael Bradley, $6.5 million. Guaranteed compensation, the highest paid uh, American player in MLS. Um, behind him, Josie Altidore, $4.825 million, And Clint Dempsey, $4.6 uh, million. And then Tim Howard comes in at a, uh, at a hefty... 2.6 million coming into the Colorado Rapids. What's your take on, on the, the top echelon of the U.S. men's national team players? Well, first off, let me say that I think it's great that American players can be among the top 10 earners in MLS because that hasn't always been the case. And you can play in your home country and still make a ton of money. In fact, you can be overpaid in your entire uh, or in your own country. Um, that's part of the reason that they were able to sign Michael Bradley and Clint Dempsey and Josie Altidore was that uh, at that stage of their career, when they were still basically in their primes, um, MLS offered more money to them, quite a bit more than the world market was wanting to pay them. So by definition, I guess you could say that's overpaying the world market. Now, if Michael Bradley can help fill the stadium in Toronto and lead them to an MLS championship this year, uh, I think they're actually kind of in a good spot to do that potentially. Um, then I think he's properly paid, even at $6.5 million. Um, you know, Josie Altidore right now is, uh, is not nearly as productive as Sebastian Jovinko. Uh, he's injured again. He's been injured a lot. Um, and so you'd have to say he's overpaid right now. But like I said, basically all these Americans are overpaid. Tim Howard, even at $2.5 million, would not get that much on the world market. But that, in a sense, is what MLS knows they have to do to get these guys into the league. Um, you know, Clint Dempsey, um, you know, it's important for him to, to get Seattle to an MLS cup final and win this year. So, uh, that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, I'm glad U.S. players are getting paid. Absolutely. And, uh, if you haven't had a chance yet, read Brian's feature on Clint Dempsey, uh, on our website, Planet Football, um, good stuff ahead of Copa America. Um, just wrapping up, uh, on this and then we'll move on. Robbie Keane who some might say, I would argue, is, is the best DP signing, uh, foreign signing in, in MLS history, $3.5 million. Uh, that seems like a relative bargain when you take into account the fact that his teammate Steven Gerrard is at 6.1. Um, that, to me, stands out. He, he's, he has been worth every dime that, uh, that the Galaxy have paid him. Um, it's always an interesting time seeing these, these salaries come out. Again, it's not gospel, but it is a good reference and it is a good guide. I think what I would say also, too, is, is that it's always kind of awkward having these discussions because MLS is still at a stage of its development that putting butts in seats is a big part of what somebody gets paid if you're a big star. And so 
Steven Gerrard looks like he's making a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, Kaká, and yet, you know, especially Kaká, I think, does put butts in seats. Steven Gerrard theoretically should put butts in seats, but I don't know if he does. Um, Frank Lampard, same thing. So uh, MLS hasn't gotten yet to the point where it's all about on-the-field production, but Robbie Keane, man, underpaid. Yeah, when you take into account everybody else, absolutely. Uh, let's go back over the pond now. Uh, a lot of domestic cup finals this weekend. Um, in fact, all the all the five big leagues, they'll all have their domestic cup finals being played on Saturday and Sunday now that the league seasons are over. Uh, Grant and Brian, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on each of them and, and see who you thought uh, might go ahead and, and lift some silverware this weekend. Um, Brian, let's, let's start with you in the FA Cup, Manchester United and uh, Mighty Crystal Palace. What uh, is is Man United gonna end with, with a a happy a happy Louis Van Gaal? It would be a uh, it would be a totally appropriate conclusion to this bonkers English season if uh, a club that has never won a major honor like Crystal Palace uh, beats the mighty Man United in the FA Cup final. So I, I I'm sure there are uh, an an uncountable number of neutrals who would love to see that happen. Um, it's impossible to follow the Van Hall saga at Man United. He's in, he's out. Uh, he has support. He doesn't, um, you know, uh, obviously they've got some exciting young players like Martial and Ash and Ashford that are, that are fun to watch, but this team is just turgid. They look uninspired with the, the specter of Mourinho is looming over it all. Um, so maybe he's coaching for his job on Saturday. Maybe he's not. Um, but I think, like I said, in, in this season of, of, uh, of, strange occurrences and underdogs and Cinderella stories. Why not Crystal Palace? You know, why not a club that's sort of been mediocre for so many decades uh, to come in and have this wonderful moment? It would be a, a fitting way to end things. Can't wait for the Leicester City Crystal Palace Community Shield. <laughs> that's going to be fantastic. Exactly. No, that would be fantastic. Yeah, right. The perfect, perfect symbol. It'd be great. <laughs> uh, Grant, in German, Bayern Dortmund, um, I think, for me, it's the choice, the choice match of, of the weekend. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, on paper, this is the, the two heavyweight teams of, the, of Germany, uh, which we're not necessarily seeing in the other cup finals in Europe this weekend. And, uh, and also with an American flavor, too. If Christian Pulisic gets a chance to be in the 18 and, and potentially play in this game, that would be kind of cool. Um, you know, it's Pep Guardiola's last game at Bayern Munich, and... It's interesting because it's like, of all the trophies, the least important of, you know, Champions League and Domestic League, but uh, it does maybe have an impact on just, you know, his final moments with the club. And, um, uh, you know, you look at these two teams and how they played against each other this year, and, and Bayern Munich has had the advantage whenever they have played, but clearly Dortmund is capable of beating Bayern uh, in this game, and uh, I like what Thomas Tuchel has done uh, at Dortmund, so... Uh, yeah, if, if it'd be cool to see an American Pulisic uh, win a trophy, and, and I kind of like him to stay healthy at least uh, before Copa America starts and he joins the team. That would be uh, that would be nice. There's also the awkward uh, plot twist of of Mats Hummels going from Dortmund to Bayern. Who's he playing for <laughs> this weekend? Let's let's find out. Uh, Brian in Spain, Barcelona and Sevilla. Sevilla, the, the three-peat of Europa League titles, um, playing for the Copa del Rey. Uh, this is, you would think Barcelona's to lose, yeah? Yeah, you'd think, but uh, Sevilla has proven their their medal in cup competition, obviously. Not only the three straight Europa League titles, but they won the Copa del Rey in 2010 and 2007. So sort of during this reign of Barcelona dominance, uh, while they haven't really contested the league, 
they've uh, for the league title. They've they've popped up now and then and, and won the Copa del Rey. So um, it's it, look, it's 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 beautiful soccer. The, the, you know, Spain's domination in Europe says everything you need to know about how good uh, the top of La Liga is. And uh, and I'm looking forward to it. And obviously Barcelona, after falling short in the in the Champions League, um, you know, the consolation of a domestic double will at least do something to to placate the club and their fans. Um, so this is the one I'm looking forward to this weekend, um, understanding the drama of Palace and the drama of of Bayern Dortmund and, and PSG Marseille and, and, and the rivalries like that. I'm, I'm looking forward to the Copa del Rey. And this will also be the last action that uh, Messi and Suarez will have before going to their national teams for Copa America. Um, so we'll see how they hopefully come through unscathed, of course. Uh, organizers are crossing their fingers, and then and then we'll come to the States. Um, Grand in Italy, Juventus and Milan, a, uh, what's, what's the nice way to put this? It, it should be a bigger game than it is. Juventus has just been so dominant and Milan so down. It's just not, not as, not as powerful a matchup anymore. AC Milan fans are really, really angry right now at the direction of the club. They're angry at Silvio Berlusconi. They're angry at how they've basically started over every July the last three years and figure to be doing that again. And maybe they'll finally, finally get bought soon uh, by, I guess it looks like a Chinese group uh, is the most likely scenario. And uh, and we'll start seeing the old AC Milan again. But for right now, uh, the new AC Milan, the modern AC Milan is not very impressive. Yet they have made it to the final here. Uh, and so there's going to be some mixed feelings even from AC Milan fans uh, if they were to win this because I don't think I think they want to see changes so badly they don't want to, there to be any sort of indication that oh you're doing okay because they're not doing okay and I don't think they need to worry in a sense because I think Juventus is going to win this uh, game uh, Juventus has been by far the best team in Italy this season uh, once again um, crazy things can happen in one game but I like Juve it will be tough to say for soccer to say goodbye to the Italian Trump, won't it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> this is an amazing statistic. I looked this up. AC Milan. This is AC Milan we're talking about. Has won only one domestic trophy in the past 12 years. They won the 2000, and I mean League or Cup. They've, they've won the League or Cup only once in the past 12 years. That's astonishing uh, for a club that we just sort of instinctively put uh, among the best in the world. Yeah, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And Juventus, I think, went like 24-0-1 in its last 25 league games to, to win their fifth straight title. Um, just just stupid statistics, and it's just really indicative of how powerful they've been in Serie A. Um, Brian, let's let's wrap up uh, with the man who knows something or two about classic exits, our boys Laton, uh, PSG in Marseille. Uh, in his last league game, he walked off the field. PSG had already used his three substitutes. He walked off the field with his kids with three minutes to go in the game. Uh, do you see him lifting a, a trophy in his final game with PSG? Yeah, I mean, he, he uh, PSG is, is dominant. I mean, they're going for their second straight domestic treble. Yeah. France has, has a League Cup as well. That That's ridiculous. Uh, they had the league title sewn up, it seemed, by New Year's. Um, you know, he is a legend, he told us himself. Uh, so, so why not walk off? I just want to add this. The French Cup is awesome. <laughs> it is an amazing competition. So we assume that the FA Cup is this all-inclusive, uh, you know, uh, every, every, every pub team and, 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 and weekend league team gets to enter. The FA Cup has 800 entries each year, give or take. The French Cup has 8,000. <laughs> Are 8, you serious? 8,000 teams. 
get to enter the French Cup. And it basically takes two years to do because those eight, you know, the 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 2017 French Cup is starting now, like in in, in Martinique and stuff. It, it's an awesome tournament, and uh, I, I like the fact you know that you go from eight thousand to two and uh, or to one who will be PSG. But it's very cool. I hope Lekeep actually prints a full bracket at some point. <laughs> the eight the eight thousand team bracket. If they're not, we should. That's <laughs> that's a great opportunity. Fantastic. Oh, well, a lot of great soccer uh, this weekend for sure. Just because the league seasons are over does not mean that uh, that the good club soccer has ended as well. And of course, next week in the Champions League final, which we will talk about absolutely uh, next week. But none of this matters. None of this matters in comparison to the Wednesday Hull City promotion <laughs> playoff. You're right. It is the biggest game in the world on on May 28th. In terms of profit, yes. Sheffield Wednesday, 90 minutes away from the Premier League unabashed Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday supporter, Brian Strauss. Can we say that? Absolutely. <laughs> Robbing. I'm ready. Well, we wish you luck next week. Uh, before we get to all of that, though, Grant, you have a, a fascinating talk with Angus McNabb from Opta. Uh, a lot of things that you can learn from this. So we'll take a quick break and then come back with that. On the SI Media Podcast, Richard Deitch welcomes five-time NBA All-Star and TNT broadcaster Chris Webber. Hear stories of Webber's incredible run with the Fab Five at Michigan, his career in the pros, and now a new life in broadcasting. That's the SI Media Podcast, hosted by Richard Deitch. Find it at si.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app of choice, including iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play Music. No podcast covers the NBA Conference Finals quite like SI Open Floor with Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver. Let's say you get up early for work and you can't stay up late to watch Steph Curry take on KD. No problem. Our guys are watching every minute and then producing a podcast that'll be ready for your commute in the morning. That's Open Floor, SI's NBA podcast. Find it at si.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app of choice, including iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play Music. We've got a terrific guest on this week's pod. He is the Vice President of Content Distribution North America for Opta, the global sports data provider. He's Angus McNabb. Thanks for joining us today, Gus. Not a problem. Not a problem at all, Grant. Um, Great to have you here. Um, We're going to talk soccer analytics and what Opta does. And from time to time, I like to have uh, a good soccer analytics discussion on the podcast because it's a topic that really interests me. I think it's where the sport is going. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss, but I wanted to start with a very basic question for you. What's the best way to explain what Opta is and what you do in the soccer space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I think the real crux of what Opta, Opta does is the analysis of matches, the analysis of fixtures. So we're taking in the video of the game and then we are plotting every single action on the ball with an XY coordinate where it took place. So it's anything from 800 to 1200 actions per team, um, all done in real time. And it will power the likes of digital experiences, your broadcast, everything that you'll see. A, a lot of the time, for example, on the Premier League, on Major League Soccer, uh, now on the NASL as well. They're sort of some of our official league partnerships, and they're some of the outputs that we power with the uh, data that's collected. Okay. And and how many countries and leagues are you taking data from? So there's about 32 competitions at the very top level that we analyze. So you have your sort of big five European leagues, 
Um, you have, like I said, the MLS and NASL here, but there are a number of other competitions that we cover across the globe that are probably not as popular or certainly not anywhere near the, the sort of name recognition here in, in the US. So things like the Austrian Bundesliga, um, the, the leagues up in Sweden, in, in Denmark, um, sort of Norway, the, these kind of competitions there, as well as um, your South American competitions. And a lot of that information powers, again, the media in their respective domestic markets, but also um, analytics, scouting for clubs and, and, and their search for the best talent really across the globe. I've actually visited your office uh, before, uh, and it's, it's interesting to me to see the process of how the data is collected, um, just to, to see it's, it's not, I mean, it's a little bit like shoveling coal to some way, in some ways, but yeah. it's, it's very work intensive. I mean, you've got a lot to do, and, and obviously there's more thought going on than shoveling coal, but it's, it's a lot of work. No, it is. It's, um, it's an interesting skill set that the guys need. Um, they obviously need the sort of soccer chops and everything that, that's there, so the player recognition, um, everything along those lines, but they also need sort of the skill set of a touch typist, have to be very, very fast inputting the data as well. Um, because we are collecting everything in real time. There's a level of post-match checking and correction mm -hmm. that goes on, but the core of what we do is live and powering the, the live experience. So it's a pretty rigorous training process for our analysts. I mean, they'll do well over 60 hours of training before they even get near a live match, mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of constantly evolving, and their, their sort of skill increases the more and more games they do. Okay. And so where are we sort of in the evolution at this point of soccer analytics? It strikes me that we're pretty early in the game still. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Dean Oliver um, spoke for us at our pro forum um, back in February in London. Um, and, and Dean was trying to quantify where soccer sits in the analytics pyramid and, and how far advanced we are. We're a lot further on than we, we've ever been. Um, it's but we're nowhere near the pinnacle of it just yet. I think we compare it to something like the NBA. I think Dean sort of guesstimated, estimated, we could possibly be as much as seven to 10 years behind where sort of the NBA or MLB are now. Um, if you look at teams, probably the best way to see that is a baseball organization in uh, Major League Baseball right now would have an analytics staff getting anything up to 10, 12. Um, whereas anyone who has a a pure data analyst, a data analyst, is is sort of a, still a bit of an anomaly in soccer. Um, it's becoming more the norm, um, but it's probably more professional clubs don't have than have around the world still. So I know you work with teams in lots of different leagues, including some of the top teams in the world. Um, what are we talking about as far as like working relationships you have with with some of the top clubs? Yeah, so I think um, one that's been publicized quite a bit in the last week, and, and rightly so, is uh, the work that the analytics and scouting department at Leicester City do. Um, they've had a phenomenal job, and I think that there's a lot of credit needs to go actually to the, the previous manager there in mm -hmm. Nigel Pearson. I think if you look at their attitude and the way that um, analytics has been, and, and sort of data and analysis has been embraced through the club, um, one of the really simplest ways that you can see that is probably when you look back on last season, sorry, two seasons ago now, the season's over, mm -hmm. but two seasons ago in the Premier League, and you look at the fact that Nigel Pearson used to sit in the stands for pretty much every first half mm. and would sit next to the guy that has his uh, 
his Mac up and sort of is using sports code and is doing some live tagging, live coding. Because mm-hmm. he knows that actually his input on the touchline during the first half is minimal. He's, he's given his instruction. He's done everything he can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's there reviewing key elements, key plays next to the video guy in the stand to then go in and really, really enforce change at half time. Um, and, and I think that's important to recognize the work that was done of people in sort of setting up and putting a, a great structure in at the club that's allowed someone else to come in and, and sort of really further that work in and allow those that are doing a good job to continue doing it. Now, it strikes me that there's a couple of different ways, probably you know, many different ways to use the data. Like what you're talking about with Pearson there is something that is very sort of rapid response, looking at things, trends in the first half of a game, potentially. And then there's also the idea of using data to identify players, potential signings, diamonds in the rough from around the world. That's a completely different way of of using the data. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, To start, I guess, how would would you use something from like the first half to actually determine what you might say at halftime or what you might change with the team? So very, very simple things, in ter- and we all know it when we watch soccer, set pieces, massively important. Um, using the, the data collection, everything's done. The way it works is that everything created um, has a timestamp, and that timestamp allows you to go back and access footage at key moments. So you can just flick straight to it, and very quickly, he can look and check that every corner. So, for example, whether offensive, defensive, in terms of they can look as has everyone sort of really hit their basic assignments. So men on post, uh, tracking a particular player, that kind of stuff using the time coding. Mm-hmm. And that, that's very, very quick fixes and things you can address. There's the data side to that as well, where you can also look at things like um, average formation of a team um, based on their touches on the ball. Mm-hmm. Teams very much, and, and, and you see this on uh, the NASL website, as it actually now with the data that we collect for those guys on the NASL this year, you can look at sort of the average formation of a team based on their ball touches live as the game goes. It takes about 15 minutes to have enough data to draw somewhat of a valid conclusion, Mm -hmm. but you can look and track that live. So you can very, very quickly see where people are naturally pinching in, for example, on a a wing. Those kind of aspects you can track. And it doesn't have to be something in a very, very long-form presentation, but you have something there that's a visual cue to a player you can show him an image, show him something very, very quickly and say, right, there we go. There's something for you to look at. Another example in live is we have something uh, where we look at pass combinations between players. Mm-hmm. So you won't necessarily have to, um, there'll be a player who's not necessarily looking at the fact that he is, he has the most passes on the team. That That's great. That's fine in terms of that information. But you can look at where they go most frequently. So you can look at his most common outlet. So you might not necessarily shut that player down to stop him receiving the ball, Mm -hmm. but you might actually try and block off his outlet pass more often. So you create unnatural thought and he's probably more prone to a launch and putting the ball up the park Mm -hmm. um, where you've got a a better chance of regaining possession. So there are a lot of things that can be looked at and and looked at in a live environment. In the coaching, scouting world, um, very, very different to sort of here with the US sport. It's a global game. Yeah. Um, and the best talent isn't within sort of this country. You've got to go elsewhere. With that, there are market inefficiencies, and data certainly helps you to look and scout. And it doesn't, and, and this is probably one of the big misconceptions of it, 
people don't just operate on data. Um, mm. The old style of coaching is there and, and scouting and, and everything exists, um, but it helps and gets you to a place quicker um, and more efficiently on your spend because sending a coach to Norway for a week to look for players in, in the old days, go there for two weeks, watch three games, watch five games, well, that's great, but that's an absolute roll of the dice. Mm -hmm. Here you're going with a very filtered, defined shortlist to look, to then gauge, speak to coaches, get some of the, the personal, the qualitative factors that go into a decision in, is this the right player for you? But your, your data side of it can help with that shortlisting process greatly. Okay, interesting. And you can customize that kind of search, right, for uh, what a coach or a sporting director may be looking for as as attributes are concerned from and then have a, a search for through all the leagues that you service yeah absolutely and that's the way it really should work is that the coach um the coach the gm in terms of when they define their style their philosophy or even just gaps in current performance you should be recruiting to address a need mm -hmm. and not just blanket um it's interesting that the questions and things have been debated this week on discovery rights mm -hmm. and things like that uh, in the MLS and, and discovering Zlatan. Well, yeah, that's not the greatest sort of discovery in the world, but you could find sort of other players that are seeing existing in French League 2 mm -hmm. who are sort of genuine discovery um, and, and, unter, and, and sort of uncover really a real diamond in the rough there. Riyad Mahrez from French League 2, as I recall. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> another... Uh, Another great bit of business by Leicester City. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about specifically what you're doing with MLS and, and NASL uh, that uh, would interest our listeners. Well, the, the MLS, and um, I've sort of come to this country three and a half, four years ago in, in my work with Opta, and the MLS continues to surprise me in a, in a massively positive way. Hmm. Um, the single entity system has some great advantages um, in the recruitment, scouting, and, and the way that the league approaches things is pretty unique in world football. Mm. Um, we, we work with the league and uh, we work with the, the CPN department, the Central Player Network, and, and everyone that's look in that department looking at recruitment, scouting. Um, and they take data from a, a number of competitions in South America mm -hmm. um, to help teams with their decision-making. And they also... Uh, have a service with us and with our data analysts where teams are allocated a number of reports per season mm -hmm. um, and we can go in and provide evaluation on a specific player and rate him against someone they may have in their current squad, the league average in that particular position, um, against another player that they might be considering for, for investment for a transfer as well. So that as a central service is, is pretty unique um, to any of the leagues across the globe. It's normally left on the clubs to do this. And the league's taking this on board um, with MLS three years ago um, was a massive positive and has really, really driven the, the, the need for sort of real quality work in re research and recruitment and scouting um, and, and justifying your decisions. Um, sport is a business. Like any business, you do your due diligence on an asset, on an investment. Um, and this is a, a really, really good way to sort of make sure that it's really sort of a rising tide, really lifting all boats. Um, and it's done a great job in doing that in the initial sort of phase. Um, we also do a lot of work with teams individually as well. Um, we work with probably around sort of three quarters of the MLS teams now 
over and beyond the sort of central services mm-hmm. um, to assist them in their recruitment, scouting, um, and everything that's there. And that that ranges from very very simple things in in live data, um, in the presentation of live data, to some teams that are really really looking now and doing the global search that for us probably is when I joined Opta in 2011 I think you could count on one hand the number of professional soccer clubs around the world who were contracting us specifically for professional team services that's now sort of into probably well over 100 150 mm-hmm. um, on, on the professional soccer side and the, the rugby world where I came from previously mm-hmm. and, and worked with Opta in the UK that was something that was probably a, a little bit further on um, in the the majority of teams, leagues, were, were using our data and our analysis there. Um, and it's it's really, really just continued to grow and grow really here. Interesting. I mean, I find it fascinating that the single entity system is, in your opinion, it sounds like a, a, a positive thing for, for MLS as far as something like this. Yeah, it certainly has been. And not only on the recruitment side, we do a lot of work with um, Jeff Agus and the competitions committee on looking at product quality. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have this data set from around the world, we're able to say, actually, where are we on our sort of mission to get to elite status by 2022? Um, we're able to, and we produce reports for ownership, for um, senior leadership at the MLS on where they sit um, for various categories in, in product quality, mm-hmm. um, looking specifically at on-field performance. Um, and certainly we can see year on year that the league is becoming more exciting, the attacking threat at the top end of the pitch. Um, it, it, it's very, very positive. And it's something that's very, very, it, it's a smart goal. It's specific, it's measurable, it's attainable, it's realistic. And ultimately it's, it's trackable, huh. which is the key thing with us. Um, and, you, and you think it's realistic? I mean, the, the whole 2022 thing based on what you're seeing from a data perspective. I think absolutely. When you look at the investment and what they're doing with players um, and you look at the quality of player that's coming into the league, the product mm. quality on the field is rising. Is mm. rising. You can't, when you look at someone like Sebastian Giovinco and you look at his numbers across last season, across this season so far as well, there's no, way, there's no other way to describe that as world class. Mm. Now, again, when people are recruiting and look at, they will look at bias and quality of a competition and apply a rating to a competition when they recruit, to look at player strength, but someone like the MLS is is well up on that sort of list and marks from where it once was. It is a quality competition that people really rate certain attributes on players and things like that. And it's not the traditional, um, it's rather old school view of American players. They're great, they're fit in terms right. of it. There are some real sort of elements of skill and and sort of some, we've seen some real improvement in the league over the last number of years. Okay, now over time, I've spoken to various people in soccer analytics and what they've often said to me is a lot of clubs leagues are using data now but there still aren't that many that are kind of all in or really the manager or the sporting director the people in charge trust it yeah (laughs) or or even want to use it Uh, like what are some of the teams both in mls and maybe in england say uh, that you've encountered who actually really appear to be using the stuff? Um, so Toronto are doing a good job here. Um, Toronto are doing a very good job here in, in the US. Um, and it's no sort of secret, I'll say them, because Devin Pluer, who's their sort of uh, manager of analytics, director of analytics up there, Devin used to work for us at Opta and then went to Toronto. So 
we're obviously a big fan of his. He's a, a good, very good friend of mine. But the, some of the things that they're doing there are, are very, very good in the way that they're preparing scouting reports, um, establishing a workflow with the coaching staff to deliver information at the right times. Um, a lot of things with analytics and we've seen cases where it's not worked in a club or an organisation is because they've, they've not defined roles, they've not defined a workflow, they've not defined when a coach is going to get something. Um, I think if you just say, we're going down an analytics route, well, it's like, well, what does that mean for my organisation? You have to very, very clearly define roles, define process, and look at what analytics is going to deliver you. So if it's actually we're going to work behind the scenes and work on recruitment and provide a list to our scouts, that's great. If it's we're going to actually go into detail and look at our next opponent and it's going to be an opposition analysis and things we can do there, again, that's fine. Um, if it's actually just going to reflect on our own performance and see where we could be better, again, that's fine. But I think you just have to have very clear conversations um, and look at where people are within the organisation and people will accept it if it's built into their day-to-day duties and it's not a chore um, and it delivers something of real value. I think the most successful clubs do that and, and do it very, very well. I wanted to ask you about a term that we're hearing more and more in media discussion of soccer is expected goals. And uh, I guess just to start, what are expected goals? So expected goals is if you look at the ch- a chance that's created and a shot resulting from that chance, what is the expectation that the player will score? Mm-hmm. So putting a probability on a shot is essentially what an expected goal is. There are a number of things that go into that. So the pattern of play, um, was it a fast break? Um, was it sort of a set piece? All of these aspects that go into it. And then you look at things like where the shot was from, where the goalkeeper was stood, where the shot was going to. And so you've got a a before and an after value, really. So you can have, we look at expected goals, but we also look at expected goals on target um, Mm -hmm. as well, because that's probably a a truer reflection Mm -hmm. um, as well uh, in in looking at a model and and building it. And I can't lay claim that I'm the one that sits in a shed at Opta and does all this work. We have a a brilliant data scientist and, and team of data scientists that's, that's growing, um, doing all of that work, building all of those models. And I think uh, a lot of the things that I now do is sit and build relationships with coaches and it, not necessarily explain it. These guys get it in yeah. terms of, but it's sort of how that can be useful to them. So looking at the chances that a team are creating. So th- there are some very, very simple things where you can look at expected goals and how many should we score? You can also flip the model and look at expected goals against as well mm-hmm. and look at sort of the, the number of chances and the quality of chances you're allowing um, your opposition to have as well. We, we do seem to be having a debate that's sort of similar, and I smile about this, to Joe Morgan in baseball having an issue with analytics in that sport. And, and this came up in a recent uh, Craig Burley versus Gabriel Marcotti discussion on ESPN FC about expected goals. Um, Why is there some controversy over this, I guess? It's like anything new. (laughs) Anything new is treated with suspicion, and that's it. uh, And it's also, you look at the the age of players and things like that, and this isn't meant to be a dig at Craig Burley, but he's quite a while away from playing. Um, Whereas you look at the work someone like... uh, 
Jamie Carragher, Gary Neville are doing in the UK. They're players who grew up with analytics and sort of at the forefront of it. I mean, Manchester United, in terms of Sir Alec Ferguson, if there was any advantage to be taken, he would use it. So Gary Neville will be useful with presentations of data, of numbers, and he's taken that onto his role um, with Sky in the UK. Jamie Carragher would have been there in the Damien Camoli years at Liverpool mm -hmm. and will be used to have seen data to present and sort of give information. Brendan Rodgers, again, used data analysis a lot when he was at, at Reading and at Swansea as well in his preparation. So you have a group of players now who are going into the media who are more familiar with these terms um, and, and want to use them because actually it gives them some competitive advantage over some of the older guys, really. Um, and a point of difference. And uh, I think having a debate on it and its merits and actually it's the league table that counts, there's some truth in that in terms of because people are hired and fired based on what a league table sets. But I think the having a, a genuine debate on it rather, in, rather than a shouting match is certainly far healthier for it and a much better place to be um imagine that <laughs> i know exactly exactly <laughs> um i wanted to ask you about we mentioned before we came on here a specific thing involving expected goals and chicago fire and um is there some light you can shed on maybe what they're doing with some of the moves they've made recently connected to their expected goal situation yeah i think um that they are struggling for goals in terms of when we look at expected goals and things like that. We, we exclude penalties and we exclude those kind of factors in there. Um, I think a penalty sits at around about 70% sort of success rate, something yeah. around there. So um, where we, we exclude those factors and we look at sort of number of on-target shots, number of total shots, and, and then we look at sort of expected goals. Um, Chicago Fire have only had sort of 21 on-target shots this season so far. Um, uh, and that is significantly lower um, than anyone else in the competition this year. So going out and recruiting sort of someone at the top end of the pitch who's proven in the Eredivisie is a, is a great move for them. Um, they are slightly behind their expected goals on target. They've scored eight, and uh, their expected goals on target, our model puts them at about 10.19 um, for, for that particular metric. Where it, And they needed to go and do something, and I think that's where... Um, a GM like Nelson will very much take on board sort of the data, the numbers, what, what are things telling him and, and work with his head coach to say, OK, this is an area where we can look and try and find some help here. Um, you've got the flip side of that and you look at someone like uh, the Whitecaps at the moment in terms of I think we've got 19 goals when we look at things there. Again, I believe excluding non-penalty goals and, and things mm -hmm. like that. But they're, um, again, they're, they're expected goals on target um, is actually showing them that, that they're underperforming still quite a bit, but still with sort of 19 goals, they're, they're up there in, in the link charts. Their expected goals on target shows that they should be around sort of 25.48, something mm. around that mark. So they're a very, very different situation. So you've got a team there in Vancouver who actually we're doing quite well. We're, we're sort of up towards the, the top end um, of the league. We're certainly happy with where we are. But actually, the underlying might be there that there's more to come from them as well okay. um, versus someone like Chicago where it's a, an underperformance and actually we need to do something to redress this. And so the signing of Michael DeLeo by Chicago recently here, uh, a pretty clear response to their situation. I think so. I think all teams will look to improve their roster at various points during the year. 
it's a natural time for MLS clubs to look, and I think they've uh, picked a player who's proven in a very solid European competition in the Eredivisie, um, and, and I would fully expect him to to do well and perform well when when he sort of lands in Chicago in the next couple of weeks. I wanted to ask you about an event that took place fairly recently at Columbia University that you did, uh, and I think it was involving MLS teams, correct? Or at least trying to put together an MLS team using data? Yeah, so I've been um, a sort of guest visiting lecturer up at Columbia since January of this year, and um, as part of their Masters in Sports Management, um, they sort of went and spoke to the sports business community, and there was a, a real desire for the course to have much more analytical components. So be that on the ticketing, revenue side of the business, but also on the sort of real looking at recruitment, strategy, everything like that, who went into player personnel departments. So we've worked with the university and devised the course with them there. And the final task of sort of the module that I was taking and teaching on the analytics of global sport, the task was to use the publicly available information from the Players Association and player salaries and our Opta data to power and, and pull together what a MLS roster could or perhaps even some would say should look like um, mm. based on performance from the last three years of data. Um, and it was a really interesting process um, because there were varying levels of soccer intelligence within all of the groups that were taking part in the competition. Um, and they were looking at some pretty serious mathematical regressions in the mm. data and some interesting things taking um, sort of theory from the business world and um, portfolio theory and looking at what your spread of risk should be in your squad. Mm -hmm. So how many flyers could you realistically take on sort of players that you, you were, they were high, high risk, high reward kind of things and, and all of these elements to um, devise a roster. And um, it was interesting. We, we put it out there. There was an article that went up on MLSsoccer.com as well. And it got some really, really interesting comments and replies. Um, mm -hmm. This was something that was done purely on the analytics side. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was the, the usual comments on the message board, like, so this is a joke, there's no team, there's no players from either the Timbers or the crew in here, and they were the MLS Cup finalists. And um, yeah, there, there might not be, because it was looking really at some ways at, at a value play in terms mm -hmm. of where can we find sort of value or, or market inefficiency within our own league? Mm -hmm. um, where are some of the guys that, really stand out as uh, really give standout performance and really value for money. Um, there's an article on the um, Opta Pro blog right now from one of the students who took part in the competition, James Appel, um, on their sort of process in getting to their selection, which is quite interesting for anyone who's into their analytics, their numbers and everything there. But it was, it was a really interesting process um, to go through um, and, and to see the feedback from it as well. Did any players stand out as far as MLS players with high value I think surprises? Uh, the, there was some players that um, our analysts and guys in the office have always liked. Mm -hmm. um, so the way our analysis um, worked uh, here in, with the guys that when we were analyzing in New York was the guys would get a team and that would be their team for the year. So they would be very fond of a particular player. It, it would develop that way. Um, <laughs> And so the guys that had Chicago had said for a number of years that David Akam was, in terms of incredibly good value DP. Mm -hmm. um, and when people were looking at sort of uh, putting a valuation on him and his inclusion, uh, he, he appeared in quite a lot of rosters as a 
pretty significant value pick. Um, and, and that was certainly interesting. Um, it, it was an interesting one. It was very, very interesting because people weren't certain uh, and there was a couple of things on players potentially playing out of position, but actually when they came to the league and started, that was their sort of given stroke designated role and so they were in our database in a particular position. Mm-hmm. Now, when we do the week-to-week formations, they'll be different, but the, the core database, their position had maybe shifted a bit from where they had started. So there was accusations of picking people who were out of position and, <laughs> and all of these elements. Because Jürgen Klinsmann, you're a virtual coach. Well, oh, controversial. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, it was interesting. It, it was very, very interesting. I think there's, there's that argument as well, picking people for a system and and. That was it. The, the quality of the work, the quality of the research was brilliant for a week um, and the week that the students had to pull yeah. this together. They were sort of identifying playing style within all the huh. teams and, and everything like that in addition to selecting this. So they were saying, right, how do certain teams play? Are they possession-based? Are they counter-attacking based? Are they more balanced? And then looking at player fit within that. Um, yeah. it, it was a... A really, really uh, great process to be involved with and, and thoroughly enjoyed the work that we've done with Columbia this year. Nice. Um, I, I have to ask this question. It may be a yes or no answer from your end. Um, as is, is it possible to use data to find the opposite of David Akam? Like, we have this debate here. Is Frank Lampard the worst signing in MLS history? Is there, Would there be a way to compare Frank Lampard to Rafa Marquez? Because we aren't quite sure... It, which is the worst. It's, it's one of those interesting things with data. You can always use data to make your point. Um, <laughs> and, and if you looked at something on a, a per-minute basis, I'm not sure Miss Lampard would fare too favorably if you looked at per-minute and salary, something like that. It, listen, you can do... that. That's probably one of the real things that we've not struck on is that data in terms of when you're reporting of it and the way it's represented and um, the way data is represented and, and how big a sample size is to draw valid conclusions is a real key point. And, and you can joke on it and people can look at player A versus player B, and but there are other circumstances that go into it. Yeah. And it's why that that sort of point we made on we're not replacing traditional scouting exists right. um, is that you can always do these things, but you need to sort of check back and, and look at sort of underlying factors and, and things that existed. I think when you look at Frank Lampard's injury record throughout his career, um, he's not really suffered particularly with any True. sort of injuries or anything like that. It's just been incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. Um, it's just been incredibly unfortunate. I think uh, it looks like he's going to get back out on the field in sort of the coming sort of a week or so Um, and I think it would be great that he does Um, I think when he does get back out there I think it will be very very interesting the spotlight will be on him and people will be looking at things Um, I think Andre Pirlo came in for quite a bit of stick in terms of as well when he first came to the league but I I remember early part of this year the game he played against Toronto he had most touches of any any MLS player in a game so far this season at that Mm. point um, and becoming more and more involved. I th- the whole, and we had a little chat on the uh, elevator away up to the, the office in terms of setting up things in an expansion team is, is tough. Yeah. Um, and an expansion project is a tough one. And particularly when you bring in people mid-year and, and things on that, it, it takes time. And I think um, the work that NYCFC are doing and the work that has been done over the sort of 
the period, um, they'll start to see it. I think Orlando as well. Not huge changes in the off-season particularly, but both teams certainly look like second-year, not first-year teams anymore, um, and are massively improving. We're about a third of the way through the MLS regular season at this point. Are there any other things that have stood out to you about particular players or, or teams this season? Yeah, I think so. I think um, the, Red, the Red Bulls, in terms of you, you look at things there, and if we're speaking about particular players and expected goals, um, Bradley Wright Phillips is having a little bit of a tough time of it in terms of he scored three goals or sort of not again sort of taking that sort of uh, penalties and things like that mm-hmm. out the equation again um, and and he actually has an expected goals on target of about 8.77 at this point um, right. and so he is he's getting in the right positions those chances are falling to him he's still doing a great job and I think that's just sort of uh, that classic thing of how can you measure luck well yeah. Expected goals to a degree, it can't completely measure luck, but it can show you that a player is getting himself in the right position, and um, I think that'll change for him pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I know you're working with the NASL as well. Anything standing out there? I think the, the big thing from the NASL that we saw, and it was interesting, Commissioner Peterson actually uh, said it to us and said it to the press guys and things as well. Once we uh, started to get involved in there and, and the data being on the website and everything that existed for them, um, he was massively surprised by the response hmm. in terms of didn't quite realise that the fanaticism of the fans that that exists for looking into the like the minutiae of the detail and exploring things in our chalkboards, in our sort of widgets that exist in their match centre now. Um, and I think that's a, that's a general trend that I've noticed coming to the States as well. It's uh, a young soccer country in a, a lot of ways, but the the fanatical element in terms of, as opposed to casual observer or just fan, the fanatical element really do seek out soccer content and look in places um, to sort of explore it, be it sort of on MLS Reddit or NASL Reddit boards and things like that. I think for me as a, an outsider coming into the country, um, where soccer is and it's sort of uh, standing within the U.S., um, it, massively sort of surprising and, it, and it's just rising up that pyramid of importance mm. and sort of public consciousness uh, day in day out I think this summer will be fantastic with copper um, and then I think when the uh, the copper boom dies down I think the really great thing for the US is um, and for soccer in America is you've got a, a women's team going to the Olympics with absolutely every chance of uh, taking gold again and you work with the women's team as well? We, we've done a lot of work and we did a, a huge amount of work with Fox last year on mm-hmm. uh, the Women's World Cup. And uh, it was one of the most enjoyable projects I think uh, I ever had the pleasure of, of working on with their, some of their guys behind the scenes. Um, Mark Young, who now makes it onto air every now and then and is the, the maestro behind permutations on drawers and, <laughs> and everything else that exists there. Um, we did a lot with Mark and his research team um, there at Fox and on sort of some of the storytelling around performance at the Women's World Cup. Okay. Um, and it was really important for Fox that it was done and treated in the exact same way as the men's game would be, um, yeah. and rightly so. So we, we really delved into looking at key things. I, I remember, I think it was for the quarterfinal, um, I think it was quarterfinal when sort of Holiday and Rapino were suspended right. in terms of looking at their importance and where they had sort of sat within the the team structure for the US women's team and really using data to tell that story. And um, other elements like uh, Germany's thrashing of, I can't remember who it was in the the group stage, but 
doing very cool things like um, mapping out all of their shots on the on the virtual pitch and things like that. They they really really did a phenomenal job, and uh, I was delighted when they picked up a sports Emmy last week as well. Nice. Um, I guess moving forward, I, I was curious to know where do you see soccer analytics going from here? What what comes next? It's it's interesting. You've got the sort of Brentfords of this world, Michelins and things like that in Europe, who very, very publicly nailed their colours to the mast and used it. Um, it's like any sport. Competitive advantage is, is key, is crucial. And I think within the MLS, where you're in a salary-capped system, um, you can develop huge competitive advantage in support and in an infrastructure within your club. And analytics is a key part of that. So whether it's something as simple on the performance side as you might in terms of if you're a team, look to stay in the same hotel chain and take bedding for every player. So because you're doing that much time on the road, they've got a common sort of feel and it feels like the same bed that they're staying in. <laughs> and you can do something as simple as that. Team Sky do that in cycling huh. um, with David Brailsford and his whole philosophy of marginal gains and, mm. and everything that you can do to gain competitive advantage. Huh. You've got sort of things on the physiological side and, uh, and anatomy, physiology, things that sit there. Um, and analytics and data will fit very much into that sphere and looking at where you can get marginal gains. I think here within the MLS, some teams do an absolutely great job of it on the performance side and, and sort of the data analysis side. Seattle have a phenomenal guy in, in Ravi across there who does a, a great job with uh, our data and also all of their GPS and training data to look at load and injury management mm -hmm. and things that exist there. Colorado do a great job in there recruitment and scouting and, and do a lot of work with us on taking information from uh, competitions across the globe. I think when you're in a salary capped environment like MLS is and very specifically analytics here in this country, you can gain huge competitive advantage. And I only see it on a very, very sharp upward trajectory in the next few years. Nice. Well, Angus McNabb, really enjoyed the discussion. Really appreciate you coming into the studio here. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Not a problem. Thanks very much. Thanks so much to Angus McNabb for the time. Uh, that'll do it for us this week on the Planet Football Podcast. Again, if you have not yet, please follow our Facebook page or like our Facebook page, Sports Illustrated Planet Football. A lot of good things coming. Uh, a lot of big things next week, in fact. And that is a tease. I'm not going to get into more uh, about it all, but you'll definitely want to be uh, on board for all of that. So again, thank you to Grant Wall and Brian Strauss for joining us. Our producer is Alex Abnos. I am Avi Creditor. We'll talk to you next week on the Planet Football Podcast. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.